You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Radio MMT respectfully acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting, the Wurundjeri people, and we are broadcasting to the Kulin Nations. Our focus is economics, that is, how stuff is produced and distributed. We recognise that for many tens of thousands of years, First Nations people's connection to country successfully embodied the world's oldest continuous economy, which was catastrophically disrupted by genocide and displacement. We acknowledge that we have much to learn to reshape our current extractive and exploitive system to achieve sustainable prosperity for everyone. Radio MMT. Economics for the rest of us with Anne and Kev. Radio MMT. Looking at the world through the lens of modern monetary theory. Radio MMT. Macroeconomics for a well-being economy. Macroeconomics? Like, isn't that incredibly boring? No, Kevin, it's incredibly interesting. It's all about who gets what and why. Who gets what and why? Okay, I'm in. Radio MMT at gmail.com. Incredibly interesting macroeconomics for the rest of us. Welcome to another episode of Radio MMT. How are you, Anne? Hello, Kevin, and hello to our lovely listener. Thanks for joining us for the next hour as we head back into a conversation we had with economist Lachlan Kerwood-McCall. Yeah, there's a big theme around uh, the effects of unemployment and how to address unemployment uh, mm-hmm. in this week's episode. Uh, we spoke with Lachlan Kerwood-McCall in our last show. Uh, just to recap, he told us about his involvement with uh, the cabinet of, of the Prime Minister back in the Turnbull days. We learned something new about how it operates there in Canberra. Yeah, it was kind of interesting hearing that uh, internal experience. Um, he's done a lot of work with the unions. He was involved with the recommendations uh, regarding the uh, the RBA. Um, we know how to do that. Um, but uh, anyway, anyway it, we could have told them. <laughs> we could have told them that just, just, just accent. Well, not, not accent. Um, anyway, uh, he told us about the Australian Prudential Regulation Regulating Macro Prudential Policy. Macro Prudential Policy, something which um, uh, Anne and I have overlooked in mm. the past. Yeah, we had not paid attention. We need to pay far more attention to that. And apparently, it's more important than you think. Uh, and he also spoke about Phil Lowe and uh, about the ineffectiveness. Of of monetary policy in dealing with stuff but uh, this week he's going to be talking about the the famed job guarantee that we always bang on about uh, on the show yeah that came up because i was very curious about well about what the connection might be between the trade union movement and the job guarantee so we'll hear more about that in our conversation with lachlan but before we do that we do have another communication from the cape so shall we have a listen to the latest from professor bill mitchell It's time for A Letter from the Cape with economist Bill Bill Mitchell. Hello, here is another letter from the Cape. When the French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau published his 1790 autobiographical book Confessions, he recounted the story of a great princess who, when told that the peasants had no bread, replied, Qu'il mange de la brioche. Let them eat brioche, or let them eat cake. The great princess is often identified 
as the last Queen of France, Marie Antoinette, although that attribution is clearly wrong, given she was aged nine at the time the quote entered the lexicon and had not even ventured to France from Austria by then. But the general intent of Rousseau in recounting the story was to illustrate the sheer disdain that the elites have for the workers, the poor, and for those who struggle to make ends meet. The elites are still with us and still exhibit this disdain. I thought about Rousseau's confessions recently when the Governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia made several extraordinary intrusions into the public sphere. Australia's housing and rental crisis has been largely caused by a lack of investment in social housing by governments who thought that by pursuing surpluses they were demonstrating their fiscal credibility. Further, the current rental crisis is being exacerbated by the RBA interest hikes themselves, which are pushing up mortgage rates and prompting landlords to increase rents, which are a significant weight in the consumer price index. This has created a vicious cycle. Interest rates rise, rents rise, inflation rises, interest rate rises, and so it goes. Recently, the RBA governor tried to divert our attention from his culpability by claiming that we have adopted excessive lifestyles because we don't crowd enough people into our houses. He demonstrated his disdain for those enduring the housing crisis by telling them to move back home with their parents or to take in more flatmates in their rental accommodation. Mm. Kids don't move out of home because the rent's too expensive or you decide to get a flatmate mm. uh, or a housemate. Because it's, so that's, that's the price mechanism at work. Don't forget that the governor himself was able to purchase his big house in inner city in the 1990s courtesy of a home loan provided by the RBA itself which was offered at half the standard variable rate. Qu'il mange de la brioche. The governor also claimed that workers should not pursue wage rises because, quote, we have to make sure that the higher inflation doesn't translate into higher wages for everybody. This is despite workers enduring massive real purchasing power losses while watching their bosses pocket salary increases of over 15% in the last year. Qu'il mange de la brioche. The peasantry now, on balance, are not in as desperate circumstances as they were in the 18th century, when Rousseau recounted the story. But the willingness of the top end of town to improve their positions and power at the expense of the rest of us remains the central dynamic of our society. Yesterday, the Australian Bureau of Statistics released data that showed that employment was up and unemployment down. Normally we would consider that a good thing, notwithstanding the decline in employment security and working conditions over the last three decades of neoliberalism. The mainstream media reacted to the news with headlines that the RBA will just have to hike interest rates further. Think about that. 
In the decades after the Second World War, government took on responsibility to ensure that there were enough jobs for all those who desired to work, and unemployment, as a result, was very low. We considered unemployment to be a policy target, an aspiration of policy, to be kept very low where essentially the measured unemployed were just people moving from one job to another. The reason for that commitment by government was simple. Unemployment ravages societal well-being and destroys individual self-esteem, family continuity and undermines mental and physical health. Children who grow up in jobless households are shown by research to take the disadvantage of their parents into their adult lives, perpetuating the disadvantage across generations. Government should do everything to prevent unemployment from rising, and they can always provide jobs themselves if there are insufficient jobs in the non-government sector. But now, policymakers view unemployment not as a policy target, but rather as a policy tool to be used to discipline inflation. The RBA is doing exactly that now and will not be happy until it has driven the unemployment rate up and used the unemployed as fodder in their misguided policy caprice. Despite the inflationary pressures being due to the so-called supply factors arising out of COVID, the war in Ukraine and OPEC oil greed, the RBA is acting as if there is too much spending in the economy and they think that is because unemployment is too low. However, even if there was too much spending in the economy relative to the productive capacity to produce goods and services, monetary policy, the adjustment of interest rates up and down, is a very imperfect policy tool for manipulating spending. There are winners and losers. Debtors lose and may cut their spending, while creditors win and those with financial assets win, and they may increase their spending. The RBA has no idea what the net outcome of this will be, nor when the different impacts will emerge over time. The problem then is that their flawed logic leads them to view this week's fall in unemployment as a trigger for higher inflation, and so they will go even harder until the losers are forced into unemployment, poverty, and businesses start failing as the nation plunges into recession. The costs of that decline are disproportionately borne by those who lose their jobs and those that lose their houses through mortgage default, all of which is unnecessary given that inflation is falling anyway because the factors driving it, which are not sensitive to RBA interest rate hikes, are abating. But then the RBA governor and the other board members are unlikely to endure any material pain. Qu'il mange de la brioche. I'll be back next time. Until then, see you later and take care. Well, that was Professor Bill Mitchell pointing out a few unfortunate moments coming from the governor in which he's saying, let them eat cake. <laughs> oh, boy, yeah, this is this whole disconnect. Um, 
he's, he's saying like, um, oh, okay, we've got a, a housing problem, so we all just need to move in together. You know, <laughs> that, that'll solve the problem. And I bet you, I could be completely wrong. I don't know what his household's like. He might have all his relatives living there and a whole... Who knows? He but, might have the kids coming back home because they can't afford anywhere else. <laughs> but but let's put it this way. There's plenty of people in this society who own nice big houses and probably have investment properties or holiday houses or Airbnbs and all these properties that are sitting around vacant half the time. Uh, certainly, a lot of the rooms in the houses would be vacant. Um, big, big places with very few people in it. Um, yes, they, they should get people to move into uh-huh. them. Uh, or uh, how about a, a vacancy tax? How about if you're sitting there on these properties just waiting for them to rise in capital value so that you can write off your uh, your negative gearing and, and uh, pick up your capital gains and the rest of it? It's such a mismatch, isn't it, when you have the resources, when you have actual rooms and homes, and then on the other hand, you've got people who need the rooms and the homes, but somehow you can't put them together. Yeah, there's seriously a housing shortage uh, in Australia. But my understanding is that if all of the vacant properties were utilised, we wouldn't have a housing shortage. There's there's a lot of waste. Mm-hmm. And so we've got Phil Lowe, a, a guy who's on a million bucks a year, telling us that we should all move in together. <laughs> it is this, what, what's the, the expression? Let the meat Let cake, the meat brioche. Uh, and then in the same breath, in the same breath, he can say, oh, we need to be careful of wage rises uh, because if we have wage rises, and, and he's, mm-hmm. he's not talking about top end of town wage rises. He's talking about the minimum wage and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as Bill explained, there's been executive bonuses of above 15%. So when he says wage rises, he's talking about uh, anybody who's on a five-figure salary. Make sure you don't ask for too much because you might you know, <laughs> you know, might mess up my plans. Uh, whilst we have corporations profit gouging, uh, that's all okay apparently. They can profit gouge, but, but wages have to stay restrained. <laughs> well, they really don't want full employment, do they? Um, When I was listening to Bill, what it made clear to me is that these interest rate decisions, they're pretty much on a par with like decisions to, say, expand Australia's gas industry, which is elites making decisions that are just not in the best interests of everyone. Their focus is firmly on profits. Mm -hmm. uh, Well, these decisions that they're making, you know, it just says to me that they really don't want workers to have a greater share of the national wealth. Yeah. Bill mentioned, well, raising interest rates... uh, uh, creates unemployment. And I'm sort of going, yeah, yeah, and I didn't quite get the link. But of course, raising interest rates means that it's more expensive for business to to operate and, and to start up. And when business is constrained in its ability to function, they lay people off because they've got to pay more money to the banks for interest. And, and dampening the economy is basically shutting businesses down. And mm. the question you've got to ask is, what would happen if you didn't raise interest rates? What would the effect on inflation be if you didn't raise interest rates? Mm-hmm. Well, the only effect would be uh, inflation rates wouldn't change. And, and, we, and we see this in Japan, which they're not talking about, is that you don't need to do this. It's, it's unnecessary. Mm-hmm. And inflation rates apparently are coming down because the real reasons behind the inflation are starting to sort themselves out. <laughs> yeah, fuel's coming down in price. Supply lines are opening up again and, and things are, are flowing through again. That's what caused inflation. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet. www.3cr.org.au Yeah, now it has occurred to me that I think the uh, the RBA could use another tool uh, in their. Oh, do tell. They they could start sacrificing goats. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> if they sacrifice goats and inflation comes down, well, then they could say that the goats... Well, as long as they look through the entrails, they might find something. Well, they're sacrificing uh, homeowners and small businesses and, and uh, people on five-figure incomes. So you know, it might sound a bit cruel, but in the whole scheme of things. And you know they're going to take credit for bringing down the inflation rate. Oh, Meanwhile, as yeah. you say, they've been taking jobs away. And that brings us back to our second part of our two-part interview with economist Lachlan Kerwood-McCall, who is a proponent and student of modern monetary theory. And you can listen to the first part of our interview in which we talked about those three sorts of economic policy, fiscal, monetary and macroprudential. And you can listen to that in our previous episode. Yes. Uh, So shall we have a listen to Lachlan? Are we in agreement with the orthodox economists that the RBA is definitely able to increase unemployment by throwing the economy into a recession by raising interest rates? Yes. But can the RBA do anything in reverse? Like can monetary policy increase employment, that is get more people into jobs, not throw people out of jobs? Do they have that reversibility? (laughs) Only so far. It it can, but, but, um, but actually Stephanie Kelton had a really good point. She said stimulatory monetary policy, so cutting interest rates to try and increase employment and reduce unemployment. It works essentially by getting people more into debt. Mm. It works by cutting interest rates, people borrowing more and spending more, and of course, you know, businesses borrowing to invest more and that generating more employment. That that is sort of a fundamental problem. Oh, that's when they call it a sugar hit for the economy. <laughs> it's not really yes. a good nutritional meal. <laughs> and really the 10 years pre-pandemic, but especially um, the four years from 2016 onwards, it just seemed like no matter how much the RBA cut interest rates, it just wasn't doing the trick. It was supposed to be stimulating business, therefore stimulating activity and creating uh, growth in the economy. Uh, and of course, it being such a clumsy lever at the same time, it drove house prices through the roof. Yeah, it's incredibly primitive and blunt as an instrument. So basically, if we're going to have a decent macroeconomic theory and policy, we're going to figure out how to have full employment and at the same time to have stable, low levels of inflation. So I'm guessing that if you're taking an MMT view of full employment, that you would see a job guarantee as a vital part of achieving full employment. Absolutely. And just to remind everyone, we see a job guarantee as the federal government making an unconditional job offer at a socially acceptable minimum wage to anyone who is willing to work. And it would be funded by the currency issuing federal government, but administered by local authorities like the local government or non-profits. So, Lachlan, I'm wondering if uh, you would see the job guarantee as a central way of doing this. And just how does a job guarantee manage to be such a vital part of fiscal policy? It's a great question. There, There are so many ways to answer it. One line that's stuck with me by Stephen Hale, you can... You can either guarantee employment or you can guarantee unemployment. (laughs) That's the choice. That's the policy choice. And the system we have had for decades now has guaranteed unemployment. And if you believe in workers' rights, as I do, then the right to a secure job at a living wage is pretty fundamental. I I, I actually really do start with the ethical and moral first principles, which is do we or do we not believe that workers that everyone deserves the right to uh, a job at a living wage. 
do people deserve the right to employment if they want? Your right to be able to earn money, which is your right to be able to eat and uh, have a roof over your head. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And I think it sits alongside some of the questions posed by the basic income movement. Um, I'm not necessarily a fan of the UBI, but I am a fan of some form of basic income in the sense that you should also have a right to an income and have a right to survive separate to whether you work or not, not conditional on whether you sell your labour. But you should also have the right to sell your labour for a living wage mm. and to have security in that. I don't see them as the, the right to employment and the right to income as conflicting rights. Mm -hmm. So I um, but basically I sort of just devoured Bill's book, Bill Mitchell, his uh, first book in 2008, Full Employment Abandoned, with uh, Jan Meisken. Bill puts it very well in, in Full Employment Abandoned where he says, if you recognise that the right to a job and the right to employment is a human right, then the job guarantee represents the minimum that governments can do to, to meet their obligations and to meet that right. It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating piece of writing and it's a fascinating, sorry to, to, to go off topic for a second, mm. I think it's one of the best books ever written by an Australian economist. Mm. One of the reasons I love it is that it's a very technical, nerdy, academic <laughs> text. There's a beautiful exposition of logic. And I, um, I disagree with Bill on only one issue when it comes to, when it comes to the job guarantee, is that um, I think that once a job guarantee is introduced, job seeker um, shouldn't be removed. But what I really love about it is that underneath it is this sort of undercurrent of anger, <laughs> this undercurrent of indignation at what has been done to the working class and to Australian workers. That comes through in Bill's blog as well. <laughs> it does. It does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the nicest possible way. <laughs> so I asked Lachlan about whether the RBA can increase employment. We've talked about how they can decrease employment. And supposedly it can increase employment by lowering interest rates, which supposedly entices businesses to borrow more, which then creates more jobs. But then Lachlan made the point that in the years leading up to the COVID lockdowns, interest rates were at record lows, and yet we still had high unemployment. Yeah, it, it, it's more than just interest rates. If you want business to pick up, there needs to be customers. And, and that's more than just interest rates. That's, that's fiscal policy. Mm. So... At that same time that interest rates were coming down, we had uh, a coalition government on an austerity program mm. who weren't spending into the economy. So you can lower interest rates as much as you like, but if people aren't buying stuff, businesses aren't going to work. So it's futile. And again, we come back to this constant theme that you need fiscal intervention in the economy for things to work. Uh -huh. I like Lachlan's point there too, that even if this lowering of interest rates was going to create more jobs, the way it would do that is by putting the private sector deeper into debt, which means that they're deeper in debt to the banks, which means that you've got a more fragile economy anyway. So even if it worked the way they said, it wouldn't be a great option. <laughs> There's nothing good about it. And what I'm learning through this whole thing is that it's disguised as trying to stimulate the economy or keep inflation in check. But if you look at all of these policies, their real aim is to increase profit for people who are already rich. It's a good way of funneling wealth up to the top. <laughs> I'm James Juniper. I'm an economist at the University of Newcastle, and you're listening to Radio 3CR. In terms of the macroeconomics of the job guarantee, and the chapter that really sort of stuck with me, outlining the macroeconomic case for a job guarantee, it was chapter nine titled um, Buffer Stocks and Price Stability. Economist Lachlan Kerwood-McCall. 
Um, in terms of the macroeconomics of it, um, it's an automatic fiscal stabiliser, which is a fancy way of saying that, say, with um, a job seeker, if the economy slows down or if the economy goes into recession, unemployment increases, government spending automatically increases in the form of job seeker payments. So there's automatic stimulus there. And then, of course, as the economy recovers, the unemployment rate drops, then, of course, um, government stimulus is automatically pulled back. The job guarantee is kind of that on steroids. Mm. So in that sense, it's about stabilising the macro economy. Mm -hmm. There's a great way he compares the job guarantee with conventional Keynesian stimulus. Mm -hmm. Um, He he refers to it as the difference between spending on a price rule versus spending on a quantity rule. Uh, Keynesian stimulus essentially involves the government looking at an economy that's it's either in recession or, or economic growth is falling, the government, based on its best estimates, picks an arbitrary amount of money that it thinks it needs to spend into the economy to stimulate growth. You know, we, we remember from um, the Rudd government in the case of the global financial crisis, um, the Rudd government advised by Treasury decided we needed to spend X many billions of dollars mm-hmm. to stimulate the economy. That's spending on a quantity rule, picking a quantity of dollars and spending them into the economy and then essentially relying on the existing market economy to, the term is, is, is Keynesian um, multipliers. You spend, let's say, X many dollars building a school, that stimulus multiplies up because, of course, the workers who receive wages through that program also go down to the local shops and spend at the local shops, and that means more employment at the local shops and so on. Um, so there's a multiplier effect. So we did see Keynesian economics implemented right after the GFC here in Australia. Yes, we did. Can I just give my personal experience with that? At that time, I was uh, doing events for the corporate sector when the GFC hit, and, of course, when the GFC hit, all the corporations wound back all their operations, and so... My work dropped right off. Well, my mate who's a sparky said, can you come and help me wire up some schools? And so I did that instead. Um, the schools program that kept me busy that whole time. Mm. So I could go down to the supermarket, continue to buy the groceries, et cetera, and, and live a normal life. Uh, it, it worked. That was the government funding that, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So all the, all the schools being done directly picked up the slack where my other work had, had dropped off because of the GFC. So that's Keynesian economics, but we're moving a bit further. <laughs> yeah, which is all really important. And it's definitely something that governments still should do and need to do. But the fundamental flaw of relying on that alone is that there's always a risk of either overshooting. That is to say, you've calibrated the stimulus poorly. You've overestimated how much you actually need to spend into the economy and that potentially results in inflation or you've underestimated the size of the stimulus required and so you've ended up with some residual unemployment. The advantage of a job guarantee as a macroeconomic stabiliser is that you're instead um, spending on what Bill calls a price rule, which is the government says this is the living wage, we will offer employment at the living wage to whoever wants it So, in other words, the government is spending the minimum it needs to to ensure full employment. And the amount that it therefore needs to spend um, to ensure full employment is determined, as economists would say, endogenously, that is, within the model. It's determined by the economy at a particular point in the business cycle, and it automatically fluctuates in response to the economy. So the government doesn't risk overshooting or undershooting in its stimulus because the stimulus is automatic. I've heard Bill say it, it's determined by how many people walk into the job guarantee office. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. which is itself um, determined by fluctuations in the economy, fluctuations in the business cycle. So it also essentially means that you can deliver full employment no matter the level of aggregate demand. So no matter what level of total spending is in the economy, mm. you can deliver full employment 
during boom and bust. I've always viewed the job guarantees as a bit of a, a stagflation buster. It's why it's different to conventional Keynesian stimulus. Mm. Um, now, of course, you can also do other things. You can also do industry policy. You can also do public works. You can also invest in infrastructure. The government can do its spending in other ways, yes. Yes, you have both. You always have the job guarantee there, but you also do other stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Just because you have a job guarantee, and Bill said this, the job guarantee would ideally be as small as possible because you'd also be doing a whole bunch of other things like rebuilding, manufacturing, mm-hmm. investing in the care economy. You'd be building the zero-carbon energy um, grid that we need. Mm. You'd be doing a whole bunch of other things. But the core of it is that you're spending on that price rule. You've said this is the price of an hour of work. It's a living wage. We'll spend on that price rule and we'll hire whoever walks through the door of the job guarantee, um, as opposed to, as I say, the government picking an arbitrary uh, number of dollars and either overshooting or undershooting. So this overshooting part, that's risking inflation. So is that why we say the job guarantee is uh, like either anti-inflationary or non-inflationary? So um, Bill's um, uh, acronym is the NABOR, um, Non-Accelerating Inflation Buffer Employment Ratio, as in um, it, it allows us to actually hit true full employment without inflation. Um, of course, there would be a short uh, one-off bump in inflation because all of a sudden people who were previously on job seeker living below the poverty line would now have a living wage and of course they'd, they'd spend it at the shops um, but in the long run there's no um, inflationary effect because there's another component and this is what i think is really fascinating about it it's one of the really nifty features of the job guarantee as a sort of inflation fighter it's also really played out in the last 12 months mm. uh chapter nine in in bill's book full employment abandoned he, he uh firstly compares the job guarantee to just relying on keynesian stimulus but um, he then has a really interesting section of the book where he um, looks at, well, would the neighbour be lower than the neighbour? That is to say, would the pool of public sector workers in the job guarantee be smaller than the pool of unemployed workers required to deliver low inflation under the neoliberal system? And he, he posits that it would actually be smaller because he makes the point firms generally prefer to hire people who are already employed. Mm-hmm. Firms generally have a bias against the unemployed. Mm-hmm. Um, well, most of that is is an irrational prejudice, but some of it is also based on a realistic assumption that someone's unemployed, they've been out of work for a period of time, um, they may not be as job ready, maybe their skills have deteriorated. If you're in the workforce, you're going to have a, a, an already established work discipline. Yeah, that's the view. So therefore, you've got this slightly bizarre situation during a recovery. We've seen it playing out over the last 12 months. During a recovery, firms will try and pinch workers off of each other. Mm-hmm. That will tend to push up things like bonuses. That's exactly what we've seen in the last 12 months. We've seen bonuses. We've seen businesses offering things like free gym memberships, doing anything they can to poach workers from each other. Of course, the last thing they've, they've wanted to do is actually raise wages, which is only just starting to happen. Mm-hmm. What it means is essentially because unemployment degrades people's job readiness, it damages their physical health, their mental health, their productivity, their skills. It means that you create an artificial labour supply shortage mm. and that itself creates inflationary pressures, whereas under a job guarantee, people would have the option, the purely voluntary option, to stay employed, building up their skills, keeping up their physical and mental health mm. in a period that they would otherwise be unemployed. And therefore, there's a much smoother transition, if you will, from the bust back to the boom. There's a much smoother recovery in the labour market. I'd heard Bill talk about how people can transition out of the job guarantee program into the regular job labour market, but I'd never understood how 
that is also preventing some form of inflation. That's amazing. It means, yeah, it means it means a better functioning labour market. It's not just improving security for workers, which is the major attraction for me as a trade unionist, mm -hmm. but it also means a, a far better functioning labour market. Radio MMT. On 3CR. Between 5.30 and 6.30pm. The second and fourth Friday of each month. Radio MMT. If you like our show, subscribe to 3cr.org.au and mention Radio MMT. And you can find us through your favourite podcaster and give us lots of stars. And or give us a like on Facebook, Twitter or YouTube. Your support really helps. Because if you're not liked on social media, you don't exist. <laughs> There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au Well, we heard mentioned there too with Lachlan that uh, one of the potential disagreements within the MMT community, Kevin, and I was wondering... Where do you come down on the issue of a right to an income versus a right to work, which in practical terms means having a basic income alongside a job guarantee? Well, yeah, what uh, Lachlan was talking about in that last segment was that work is regarded as a human right because work enables you to uh, function in our capitalist society. You can afford to buy things. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and if that is restricted from you, if you don't have the ability to work, then effectively you, you've been kneecapped mm -hmm. by society. It's, a, uh, it's an infringement upon your human rights. So if you've got somebody who can work, works available to them, and they choose not to, mm. uh, you, you then have to start questioning society's responsibility to look after them. Uh, so uh, I think I fall on the side of keeping something like uh, unemployment benefits for people who won't or don't want to work. Um, if they can't work, uh, if you're not well, if you you know if you've got a disability or something like that, then uh, you should be supported at the same rate as the the job guarantee at the minimum wage. Mm -hmm. If you just don't fit, if you just think I am not a capitalist, I'm not going to be a, a hamster in the wheel. I'm I'm not going to contribute. <laughs> we still have a responsibility to look after those people because we have created a capitalist system in which they don't fit. Mm -hmm. So let's say they are some dope-smoking buddy, whatever, and they just go, I'm, I'm not part of the capitalist system, man, I'm going to do my own thing. Well, we're not going to let them starve, are we? No, no. I think where I am with it all at the moment is that I've decided I'm going to be agnostic on the basic income. Because what I want to see is a job guarantee that sits alongside something like universal basic services. So we don't let people starve. We put a roof over their heads. We give them free dental and free uh, medical. 
And then um, I would suspect that we're looking after people enough who have chosen not to work. And uh, and the other thing too is that I want to see a job guarantee sitting alongside, as you say, proper supports for those who can't work and also alongside a strong industrial policy that's going to transition us out of this carbon economy into a post-carbon economy. Yeah. And then I figure once all that happens, then you can sort of see who's left over and I suspect there won't be anyone left over. Yeah, and look, the other thing is, um, and we've spoken about this before on our show, is if you have something like a job guarantee in place, paying the minimum wage, setting conditions, those conditions could include reduced hours. Mm. So currently we're still looking at a 35-hour week and Mm -hmm. John Maynard Keynes said that by 2030, the average working week should be about 15 hours a week or thereabouts. So that that would set... All the standards for all the other jobs, like every other job would have to compete with that basic condition. Uh, and then if you've got somebody who doesn't even want to do just a couple of days work to get by, they, they, they should be okay. And I think the fear behind the debate is that uh, if you had both a basic income and a job guarantee, that people might tend to opt for the basic income and have a lower income and therefore they would endanger the productivity of the economy. But again, it's very hypothetical. Yeah, I'm not a big worry about productivity and kind of a GDP increase. And, and I'm a degrowther after having read a couple of books, um, you know. <laughs> but at least you're involved and interacting with other people. And that's I think that's at the heart of the job guarantee is is giving people dignity where they're, mm. they're connected to community uh, and they have the means to live a, a dignified life with a roof over their head, etc. And and I also want to emphasise that although I'm agnostic about a basic income, I am definitely opposed to a UBI or a universal basic income. And for me, the main reason for that is because the job guarantee does what a UBI does not do, which is that it does work to manage both inflation as well as unemployment. So it's not just dealing with the unemployment or lack of income. Yeah. And the way a job guarantee helps to stabilize inflation is it does it by being an automatic stabilizer as the economists call it and that just means that the government is spending automatically so the spending automatically increases when there's a downturn in the economy and it automatically decreases when there's an upturn in the economy yeah and if you compare that to the ubi the ubi is just spending no matter what (laughs) it just ignores those fluctuations so being a uh, an automatic stabiliser. Mm. That's nothing new. That's what unemployment benefits do. Unemployment benefits are an automatic stabiliser. It's just not a very good one. This is a much better <laughs> version of, of that sort of concept where yeah. if there's a downturn, um, people become unemployed, the unemployment benefits kick in, that stabilises uh, the economy to some degree. So uh, the other thing about a UBI, as I was just saying, is uh, you're paying people to sit there and do nothing, essentially. So they lack that incentive to become involved with their community that with a job guarantee. It's about being involved and not, not being a hermit sitting at home. And Lachlan mentioned another really interesting way that the job guarantee manages inflation. And he talked about this in terms of a price rule versus the quantity rule. So the price we're talking about here is the hourly wage that a job guarantee worker would receive. And the quantity that we're talking about here is some kind of predetermined quantity or amount of dollars. 
And so this price rule is what MMT is offering that is, it's new. It's the new and improved version of Keynesian economics because under a price rule, what you're doing is you're fixing the price of labor at an hourly rate, but then you're letting the total quantity of the dollars that you spend just float up and down, depending on how many people are taking up the job guarantee at any time. So the way I think of this is even if you had a job guarantee, but you're using the quantity rule, that would mean that you would just suddenly stop spending, (laughs) even if there were more people out there who wanted the job guarantee. So it's that um, fixed price that is key to managing inflation because it also stops wages increasing as well. Yeah, yeah. The, the more you think about this job guarantee and the impacts it would have, the better and better it sounds. It's a, it's it's just better. And 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 the main the main thing that works against this with the orthodox economists is they're going to say, how are you going to pay for it? Mm. And and have we got an answer for you? <laughs> yeah, this this whole thing about how are we going to pay for it. Um, well, apart from the fact that it pays for itself in many ways, insofar as uh, the social problems that come from unemployment. You wouldn't be paying out on the, all the social ills, would you, of family dysfunction and people being in poverty and communities being in poverty? Yes, a lot of those disappear. So the actual cost of it is not that much greater than the current situation. Mm-hmm. But then as we know, as MMT is, is that that cost is only an issue if it's inflationary. Mm-hmm. We don't care about deficits. We don't care what the dollar amount is. <laughs> yeah, we, we run deficits all the time. If the deficit results in a better society, it's a good thing. And and that's what people have got to get their heads around, is that um, deficits create excess, uh, excess currency in the economy. Anybody out there who has uh, a spare dollar in their pocket, that came from a government deficit. So you're holding some of the government deficit in your pocket, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. So so anybody that says that they want to get rid of the government deficit, just give everything that you've got back to the government and see how happy you're going to be. Mm-hmm. Hand it over. Yeah. <laughs> so let's get back to our conversation with Lachlan. Whenever I hear people talk about the job guarantee, it's always win, win, win. And you just mentioned um, the union's point of view. And one thing I found really hard to understand is why the union movement's been so slow to take up the fight for a job guarantee. Because I would have thought any policy that would put a floor under wages and conditions would be welcomed (laughs) by the union movement. Mm. So I'm wondering if you could shed any light on that and, and even outline any typical objections that would come from trade unionists to the job guarantee. So I have to be making clear that I'm not speaking on behalf of the ACTU. So I'm speaking purely as an individual unionist. The economist Lachlan Kerwood-McCall. I think the first point to make is that the union movement is pretty resolute and united in its commitment to full employment and true full employment, so not the Nehru. Mm-hmm. You won't find many defenders of the Nehru um, or insecure work within the trade union movement. Sally, Sally McManus, the Secretary of the ACTU, um, Michelle O'Neill, President of the ACTU, um, Jed Carney before her as ACTU President, they have a pretty deeply held belief in truthful employment. They've seen the devastation that neoliberal economics has wrought on millions of working people. Mm. The union movement has, has been very clear in saying we want full employment to be at the heart of what the RBA does. We want full employment to be at the heart of what the government does. We want it to be 
at the centre of the employment white paper, and we want it to be real full employment, not this bullshit Nehru stuff. Mm. Um, as far as um, supporting individual job guarantee proposals, uh, I think it's. I think that the important thing to remember is that, contrary to what you read in the Murdoch press about you know cashed up unions, the trade union movement does not have a mountain of resources to campaign on everything that it might like to campaign on. Someone asked me um, about six months ago, they said, why isn't Sally McManus out there talking about MMT? And I said, well, first of all, she doesn't have any time. <laughs> She's trying to overhaul bargaining laws. There's a million things that need to be done. Certainly, it's worth pointing out that the Community and Public Sector Union, the CPSU, has long been interested in a job guarantee and has long been supportive of a job guarantee. And this is the union that yes. services unemployment. They're, they yes. are the Centrelink workers. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, Unions New South Wales, which is obviously the state-based peak body, they put out a report, I think, in 2020 uh, saying that a job guarantee was a great idea and actually had some really interesting polling showing that the job guarantee was much more popular than the universal basic income. Um, So there are individual unions that are definitely very interested in this space. Mm. The thing is to remember that the union movement represents over 1.5 million workers. Um, There are 43 unions affiliated to the ACTU. They don't all share the one opinion on everything. There are some unions that are um, more conservative than others that are a bit more progressive. Mm. There are some prominent trade unionists who are very pro-UBI. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean that you'll see you'll suddenly see Sally McManus or Michelle O'Neill waxing lyrical about the joys of a UBI <laughs> at the National Press Club. Mm. Um, but the second thing is that the peak body only has as much authority as its democratic affiliated unions confers to it. Peak bodies can't actually just go and freelance on whatever they might want. If there's a diverse range of views among affiliates, um, it's it's a democratic decision-making process. Mm-hmm. Um, the ACTU is fundamentally a democratic organisation. So what you're saying is the fact that we're not hearing a lot about the job guarantee through the union movement doesn't necessarily mean that they're in disagreement with it, but it just hasn't managed to become a priority yet. And, and and something that's that's always really stuck with me is that in terms of um, activism within the movement, it's really important not to sort of go to a trade union and say and say, listen, this is what you need. This is what you need to do. This is da 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 da. It's always really important to start from well, what are their members' concerns? What's actually affecting their members on the mm-hmm. ground? That's really important, I think, in how we approach um, our MMT activism. Is there anything else you'd like to add about how you see uh, MMT being used in the Australian thinking on managing the economy? Um, in terms of, I guess, the trajectory for MMT, um, I think that we're, we're in an interesting phase where obviously there was a lot of public attention around MMT. Well, first in 2019 when US Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez gave an interview in which she said MMT should be definitely part of the equation and our thinking MMT had a big spike of popularity and, and I guess attention then. Then of course with um, Stephanie's book The Deficit Myth published in mid-2020, then with um, the, the scale of the pandemic spending around the world demonstrating that quite clearly governments don't actually need so-called fiscal buffers. A government that has a high degree of monetary sovereignty can always spend whatever it needs to and now, even with the um, inflation crisis of the last 12 or so months, a lot of orthodox economists have definitely weaponized 
the current inflation crisis as a, as a sort of stick with which to beat MMT. <laughs> uh, governments did MMT and this is the result. Mm. Now, of course, we know that governments don't do MMT. Mm-hmm. I mean, Australia's first MMT Prime Minister was Bob Hawke because <laughs> he floated a dollar. <laughs> Little did he know, and made us a full, and made us a full monetary sovereign. There you go. But um, uh, I think we've transitioned from the phase where it's been a lot of um, uh, a lot of noise on social media and, and, a, and a lot of Twitter activists to now a phase where, surprisingly, even though MMT's public profile has died down quite a lot, it's been actually in these last six to twelve months that um, for the first time I've had dozens of current public servants in the state and federal public service economists, journalists, and various others, not just reaching out to me, but reaching out to Stephanie, reaching out to Stephen Hale, reaching out to Bill Mitchell, many of them going on to actually study Stephen Hale's uh, degrees in the economics of sustainability at Torrens University. So it's almost kind of like we're over sort of um, the peak grassroots MMT activism. And interestingly, I think now we're at the stage where increasingly we're seeing more and more young MMT economists Mm. um, emerge. We're seeing the growth in professional MMT. That's really exciting to hear and and to hear someone on the inside who knows that these conversations are bubbling away. Of course, it's always great to speak with someone who's been thinking through all these issues about the macro economy. So I thank you very much, Lachlan, for coming on to Radio MMT. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Welcome. It's been been excellent. Cheers, guys. Good luck out there. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. It does surprise me when people who might be on the progressive side of politics do just sort of barrel on past a job guarantee because they're not interested in the right to a job. And Kevin... You and I went and saw a movie installation recently called Euphoria by Julian Rosefeld. That was a banger. I loved it. Yeah, it was playing at Melbourne's Town Hall as part of the Rising Festival. And it was a two-hour extravaganza on the craziness of capitalism. But the thing I objected to in it, Kevin, was that there was one character in there had a line where they said they did not want full employment. They wanted full unemployment. And to me, that's just completely walking past the right to work. Oh, yeah. And of course, what I mean by a right to work is a right to a safe, well-paid, meaningful job. And the job guarantee lets you reimagine work this way. So it's not about imagining a society without work. And I think that if you're saying that you want to get rid of work, that's like saying that there's nothing that needs doing. (laughs) Yeah, it's a, a very utopian, very, I don't know, if we were more evolved and do good things just off our own back, which is what we, sh- we should be heading towards, then maybe some of these ideas would work. But we're nowhere near that. No, we can't make that leap, I don't think, from where we are because what happened is that money, it did usurp the old obligations that worked with a non-monetary economy. So you can't suddenly get rid of money and you can't suddenly get rid of paid work without evolving into that other place. But what we can do in the meantime, and I think people who want to have full unemployment, I think what they really are saying is they don't want to have no work. What they want is a society without exploitation. Yeah. And so that's where we have to to see, like, can we have workplaces where what you're doing is driven by human need and not the need to make a profit? Driven by human need and not by human greed. There you go. There's a good slogan. <laughs> that, that's the slogan. And the other th- yeah, and I guess we, we probably agree with that premise, but 
I think you and I understand that we're nowhere near it, uh, and that if you wanted to get closer to that uh, that situation, uh, what we're suggesting is probably a step along the way. It's, yeah. it's part of the transition to the Star Trek economy. <laughs> we're not going to go leaping into Star Trek, you know, because what we could do in the meantime is have workplaces where workers have a democratic say in how the workplace is run. And so then you might have a, a full employment society that you would happily participate in. <laughs> Socialist. <laughs> Do you know what I really liked about that movie at the um, uh, the town hall? Yeah, tell me. Because you got the big screen up the front, mm-hmm. which was where the movie is, and then you had these screens running right around the outside. So when you walked in, it looked like there was like 200 people standing around the outside. And then right. you realised that they're... Uh, I thought it was just a, a static projection. And then you understand that it's actually, no, these people are like those human statues. And you realise, no, they're, they're people. And they'd move and you'd see slight movement. <laughs> and then somewhere into the uh, the movie, uh, a song would break out and they were the choir and they all started singing. And I thought, oh, that was fantastic. So mm. it, even though I disagreed with some of the premises in the movie, they did mention a UBI and they mentioned all these other things. Um, and we go, no, 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 and tut, tut, tutting because we're in MTs and that's what we do. Um, <laughs> I was shaking my head a lot watching that. <laughs> I was very impressed by the choir and the outside and the drummers up on the wall. It was fantastic. <laughs> oh, well, one day we'll have to make our own version of Euphoria. Yeah. Well, Kevin, we have come to the end of another excellent hour of macroeconomics. Yeah, no, it's been a good show. It's been nice uh, hearing from Lachlan Kerwood-McCall. Uh, he's a, a very interesting person. Uh, he, he thinks like us uh, and he's very expressive and, and I think he knows more as well, which is um, always handy. <laughs> Yep, well, we'll see you again in a couple of weeks, Kevin. Catch you then. You've been listening to Radio MMT with Anne and Kev. We'd love your feedback. Email us on radiommt at gmail.com or search Radio MMT on social media. Listen to this show anytime, wherever you get your podcasts or on 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio MMT. Support this show and the station by subscribing to 3cr.org.au and mention Radio MMT. We thank all our guests. And we thank economist Professor Bill Mitchell and his mmted.org, educating masses on modern monetary theory. And thank you to our listening listeners for listening. And I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. So what's planned for next week? Kevin, there is still so much to talk about. We've got to expose all this rotten economics. Well, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's good and I get it. Do you reckon we could use a bit more music? Well, I made a list of all these terrible economic theories. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.